0: It means that you're listening to the series of conversations that make up the 100th to the 110th episodes of the Wonder Dome. If you're new to the Dome, welcome. If you've been here for the previous 99 conversations, thank you. Arriving at 100 episodes is a big deal for me. I've spent the past two years showing up as fully as I can for each one of these conversations. In the process, I've become a deeper listener and a more skillful interviewer. And I've been repeatedly humbled and inspired by the amazing humans I've had the privilege to meet here in the Dome. Over the next two months to celebrate this milestone, I'm gifting you, my listeners, with all sorts of cool artifacts that represent the best of the Wonder Dome. Books, music, art, coaching sessions, guided meditations and developmental practices, one-of-a-kind experiences, even the chance to join me for a special live Wonder Dome gathering where we can meet in real time and have a shared experience in the Dome. You can learn more about these gifts by clicking on the custom link in the show notes of your podcast app, or heading over to mindfulcreative.coach backslash the I'm also hosting a special series of conversations that amplify the energy of the Wonder Dome. For episode 100, my very first guest, Todd Marston, who also composed the theme song for the Wonder Dome, Interviews me to help me unpack what I've learned from creating the dome. Then, in episodes 101 to 110, I've brought back some of my favorite guests and new constellations, weaving together a series of panel discussions between so many of the amazing folks that I've spoken to one on one. These have been really fun for me, and I'm excited for you to hear them. Finally, I want to say thank you for being here with me. I often remind my guests that, in a way, every person who listens to these recordings, is in the room with us when we talk. Getting in touch with your presence as I talk with my guests deepens the quality and the energy of the conversations in amazing ways. Which is why I'm asking for your help, so that the Wonder Dome can touch even more people. We've already had over 10,000 listeners. My sense is that people are hungry for the kind of intimacy, discovery, growth, leadership, and healing that the Dome represents. I need your help to reach the next 10,000 folks by sharing this with your friends and leaving an honest, positive review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you can. Every four plus star rating and written review calls in more listeners, kind of like a snowball accumulating more layers as it rolls downhill. So please, 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 I welcome you to publicly honor and acknowledge how the Wonder Dome has impacted you. And if you'd like to go even further, I invite you to join my small but mighty community of monthly patrons. By making a donation of $10 or more a month in the Wonder Dome, you'll help me keep the lights on, support a wide range of charitable causes, and become part of a private community with access to one-on-one coaching and group experiences. Again, you can learn more all about this at my website, mindfulcreative.coach backslash Dome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Here's to the next two years and the next 100 conversations. May you go well and go bravely into whatever life has in store for you and be good to each other out there. With love. Okay, the 100th episode extravaganza continues with a wonderful constellation of guests returning. Ken Liu, from episode 27 of The Wonder Dome Making Our Home in a Story Tochi Anyabuchi from episode 48 We Can Make the Cities Levitate and Ray Naylor from episode 29 A Study in Mutability All three of these authors I could spend the next 30 minutes introducing just one of them around the sheer volume of beautiful Creative and packful work that they're putting in the world. Ken is perhaps most well known for his epic fantasy series, The Dandelion Dynasty, which he describes as silk punk, and it is freaking awesome. He his story, The Paper Menagerie, has also won oodles of awards, and he has. He's sort of an expert and a consultant on a bajillion topics from futurism to new technologies to virtual reality to sustainable storytelling. And he's just written tons and tons of stories. Tochi, his most recent book, Goliath, has been described as a masterful work by the New York Times. I interviewed him when he had just released his awesome novella, Riot Baby, He's an essayist, um, a deep thinker, philosopher, uh, creator, and he is so powerfully examining questions of identity and origin and home and what it means to be home in the world in this planet of ours. And Ray has been described uh, in some corners as one of the up and coming masters of speculative fiction. He's also won oodles of awards. He's published over 50 short stories. His new novel is probably not yet released at the time of this recording, so I don't know how much more I can say about it. But if it is, then I might add a little addendum in here once that goes live, his first novel and his new novel. So all of these writers individually are adding so much depth and richness to the tapestry of our our lives. And I hope that when you leave this conversation today, you go and listen to my other interviews with them and you go and find some of their work to read. This is the kind of work that can change your relationship to what's possible in our lives and in the future and in reality. And we need more of that. Ursula K. Le Guin, one of my um, favorite authors who passed away a few years ago, I'm paraphrasing here, but said something like, no one could imagine the end of kings until the monarchies came to an end. And in the same way, no one can imagine the end of the suffering and the, and the inequities and the systemic racism and impoverishment of our global society until someone does. And these are three human beings, Ken, Tochi, and Ray, who are each in their own way doing that, who are facing the brutality of our lives and also amplifying and deepening the beauty of our lives. And bringing them together was so cool. (laughs) So I think we should get settled in. Ken starts us off with a reading. Tochi brought a reading. Ray brought a reading. This is a rich, deep, joyful exploration of what it means to be alive in the world and human in the world now and and whatever nows might still come our way. So let's get settled in. (sighs) And hear what Ken, Tochi, and Ray have for us. All right. Ken, Tochi, Ray, welcome back. Thank you for having
1: us. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm like like a little bit giggly right now, so you just have to you'll have to forgive me if you're touching that energy. Um I suspect that some folks listening will have uh listened to at least one of your conversations, perhaps all three. But for those who haven't, just a quick word. I'm here with three of three of my favorite speculative fiction authors, storytellers, science fiction, fantasy, and they are also so much more than that, as I sense will probably come through in this conversation. And we're experimenting a bit with format today and that uh, I'm, I'm, we're going to front and center the work of each of these writers. We're going to get a chance to hear a bit of, of something from them. I don't know what yet. None of us do, except for those the person who's doing the reading. And we're going to hear that and respond to it. And see where the conversation takes us from there. And Ken has graciously agreed to kick us off, so I think we should dive in, Ken. And maybe you could just share whatever context that you think would be useful about the reading that you're going to start us with, and and then read it, and we'll go from there.
1: Great, thank you, Andy. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, um, Tochi and Ray. So um, I'm gonna start. Uh, I'm gonna read. To you a little bit from one of my earliest stories. Um, it's collected in my collection, The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. Um, and the story I'm reading from is called State Change. Um, it's uh, So I do want to tell you a little bit about the story so you understand what's going on. Um, State Change posits a world in which um, each child is born with an object that indicates their destiny. Uh, This is obviously based on uh, a ceremony that many cultures have where um, children when they're about a year old or so is placed in front of a diverse set of objects and whatever object the child picks is supposed to indicate that child's destiny. Um, And in this story, um, the the object that's born with the child literally is that child's soul. It indicates to them what their fate is going to be. could be a deck of cards, could be a cup, could be a pair of scissors, could be maybe a silver spoon. Who knows? <laughs> Something that will indicate um, what the child's destiny is. And of course, in this world, everyone struggles out of their lives to figure out what that object is. And sometimes uh, when the object is very... Um, Obvious, if you will, uh, say an ice cube or a pack of cigarettes, um, the person seems to think they know what their destiny is and they go mm. about it. And my story is very much about really, what does that mean? What does it mean to think you know what your fate is? So this comes from um, a later part of the story where one of the characters, Amy, is writing a letter to another character whose name is Rena. And Amy is the girl with the pack of cigarettes for her soul. And she has lived all her life with the belief that this is a terrible soul to have, something that is horrible, uh, something to be consumed, poisonous, toxic. Um, so we will find out if that is in fact true from this letter.
0: Hmm.
1: Rena, I hope you're well. it's been a long time since we last saw each other. I would imagine the immediate question on your mind is how many cigarettes I have left. Well, the good news is that I have quit smoking. The bad news is that my last cigarette was finished six months ago. But as you can see, I am still alive. Souls are tricky things, Rena, and I thought I had it all figured out. All my life, I thought my fate was to be reckless, to gamble with each moment of my life. I thought that was what I, what I was meant to do. The only moments when I felt alive were those times when I lit up a bit of my soul, daring for something extraordinary to happen before the flame and ashes touched my fingers. I will be alert during those times, sensitive to every vibration in my ears, every bit of color in my eyes. My life was a clock running down. The months between my cigarettes were just dress rehearsals for the real performance. Now I was engaged for twenty showings. I was down to my last cigarette and I was terrified. I had planned for some big final splash to go out with a bang. But when it came time to smoke that last cigarette, I lost my courage. When you realize you're going to die after you have finished that last breath, suddenly your hands start to shake and you cannot hold a match steady or flick lighter with your thumb. I got drunk at a beach party, passed out. Someone needed a nicotine fix pawed through my purse, and found my last cigarette. By the time I woke up, the empty box was on the sand next to me, and the little crab had crawled into it and made it its home. Like I said, I didn't die. All my life, I felt my soul was in those cigarettes, and I never even thought about the box. I never paid any attention to that paper shelf quiet, that enclosed bit of emptiness. An empty box is a home for lost spiders. you want to carry outside. It holds loose change, buttons that have fallen off, needles, and thread. It works tolerably well for lipstick, eye pencil, and a bit of blush. It is open to whatever you like to put in it. And that is how I feel. Open, careless, adaptable. Yes, life is now truly just an experiment. What can I do next? Anything. But to get here, I first had to smoke my cigarettes. What happened to me was a state change. When my soul turned from a box of cigarettes to a box, I grew up. I thought of writing to you because you remind me of myself. You thought you understood your soul, and you thought you knew how you needed to live your life. I thought you were wrong then, but I didn't have the right answer myself. But now I do. I think you're ready for a state change your friend always, Amy.
0: Thank you, Ken. Yeah. People, for those who can't see, we're just some snaps and claps coming through. Thank you. Tochi, what are you in in touch with as you, as that story lands with you?
2: Oh my goodness. I, you know, it's such a, such a fascinating depiction of, Addiction and the ways in which it manipulates time. Um, the ways in which your life becomes, you know, those interstitial moments between hits,
1: those mm. interstitial
2: moments between, you know, smokes. And I, like, I just found that sort of depicted with terrifying accuracy. Um, but it it it's fascinating because, you know, one of the things that's interesting about about smoking, and that was the thing that I fixated on in in the reading, is how it can make you present, and how it can still you. Um, you know, I, you know, I was a smoker in a past life, and I could only ever do it outside. Um, so it, I would I would tell myself I'm just going out for some fresh air, um, but I also had to make sure that I was standing still, I was stationary for it. Cause like, I hated, I hated smoking on the move. It felt like a waste of a cigarette. Um, and so I would always be present. It was the only moment in my entire day when I wasn't consumed with thoughts of tasks that needed to be fulfilled or, or obligations that I needed to attend to. Mm. I, mm. I could participate in nature. I could observe things. Um, I could feel, you know, breeze like autumn breeze against my face. Uh, so I found it, it's so it's interesting the, you know, the ways in which, you know, we can sometimes try to, to justify what is a self injurious habit, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I found that I found that very 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 interesting and and. And a very convincing obstacle to the realization that maybe her soul is the box, as opposed Mm -hmm. to the cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very convincing, like, it's a very convincing illusion to live in. Um, And I I, I don't know, I just found that so, so fascinating. Yeah.
0: Yeah, thanks, Tochi. How about you, Reyes, as as you hear the story and Tochi's reflections, what's coming up for you?
3: Yeah, you know, uh, this is. It, it seems related to so many things that I've been thinking about lately, um, in my in my own life, and trying to grapple with the sense of like, what is a self? You know, like what is the consistency of a of a human personality? Um, just recently, I've been finding myself kind of looking back a little more. You know, you have these times in your life where you just get reflective about who you were as a as a kid, as a youth, you know, and then now, and what would you think of yourself now if you were, saw, your, saw yourself, et cetera, um, and how much we are kind of trapped in this dialogue of expectations about where we wanna be in our future, right? And and uh, and and our interpretation of like a future self, how much that affects like our, our comfort in the present moment. And what it makes me think of is, um, just this realization that I had a positive realization that I, I'm finally in a place where I feel like I'm able to, not all the time, of course, be happy with who I am in this present moment. And I never felt that. I never felt that like in my twenties at all. Right. When I, when I was also a smoker uh, and, <laughs> and working retail and, you know, having cigarettes just to get a break from customers and, and still angry, you know, about, about so many things. And, um, not that I'm not angry about, about things, uh, you know, now, but it, it's, it's interesting because I feel, I feel that I felt listening to that as if that defines, that's a great metaphor for the state change that I somewhat have, have begun to feel after becoming a father, um, mm. after, mo- after mm. moving away from youth, you know, mm. uh, and some of those drives into other things. Uh, I do feel a lot more like that empty box than <laughs> the, the pack of cigarettes some you know you realize um and i think this comes with just caring for other people it's not something that's just about parenting that you're like a shelter for other people that you mm. can mm. you can be a place for them to to come to you know um and uh, and that's a wonderful thing and that's something i never even would have thought was a good thing to be when i was 20 years old or whatever right um that was moving really moving actually
0: that last bit really strikes me i mean i'm thinking i grew up in a very sort of you know well-off suburb in massachusetts um only child's two-parent household lots of love but also a lot of time to myself because both my parents worked And, uh, I spent so much of that, my mental energy, imagining myself away from that shelter, that Haven, that my parents had worked so hard to build. And, and I'm arriving now. And and as a parent of two little ones, like, as you said, Ray, like this recognition that there is really. Whether or not you're a parent, there's beauty in being able to offer someone some sanctuary, even if it's only for a period of time. And and it almost feels like Amy is, in a sense, trying to send that message to Rena in the story of like, and I don't remember what Rena's object is, and we didn't hear it, but the sort of sense of like, kind of the fire of knowing something else is waiting, as opposed to the sort of coolness and, and earthiness of just being where you are. And the other thing I want to say is it's so resonated with me that felt so true that if my soul were a pack of cigarettes as a teenager, I would have smoking that would have been the thing would have been the sort of like, this is, this is the edge that people are too that my that the old people around me are too afraid to, or the teachers around me or whoever like smoking, this is, is risque and edgy. And, and it's going to make me feel alive in a way that this sort of, all of this other stuff doesn't. And so I just love the kind of trueness of that, of like, oh, that's so spot on that the teenager would kind of play with that and then meet the moment where she has her last cigarette and kind of (laughs) retreat and and drink. And then someone just comes along and smokes. It's like, ah, you know, it's so that's so it, that's so it. So thanks, Ken, for bringing that. And I'm curious as you hear us, uh, as you hear us just play with how the story landed with us, what's coming up for
1: you? It's really striking for me uh, because I wrote the story a long time ago, and I actually had not thought about it for a while until I wanted to pick something for this reading. And I went back and decided to pick this one. Um, Just hearing Ray and Tochi and you talk about it. made me realize that there's something in here that i've now made much more explicit for myself but must have been latent in my mind even at the time which is this whole idea of negative space being so important um Mm -hmm. all three of you have focused on the image of the box the shelter the emptiness the expectation the being present the contain the expectation of, of 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 being open um It's interesting to me because um, I've I've talked about this a little bit. Um, My current approach to fiction is very much about um, emptiness and open spaces. Um, I have this metaphor I use to describe fiction, which is that um, I think fiction is a very interesting uh, art form in that um, we often think it's very overdetermined determined that it's a communicative act, that the writer actually is trying to communicate something to the reader. Um, when, in fact, that's the wrong metaphor. Um, the writer is more like a house builder or an architect. Mm. And mm. Uh, she builds a house, really. That's, that's what she does. Um, and the house is uh, encodes within it the author's own understanding of human nature The author's own experiences, the author's own vision of what life is and how life ought to be and how humans behave towards each other. But it's ultimately just an empty house because all those stories that are behind the architect's vision, the stories are not going to be in the house. The house is just the shell, the container Mm. shaped by those stories. But it ultimately is just a house. Um, And uh, I will if there's a chance later on talk about where those stories come from, but the reader then moves into the house as a new family. And uh, (laughs) I always say this, but before you can unpack the meaning of a piece of text, you have to actually pack it with all of your own life experiences, your Mm -hmm. own expectations Mm -hmm. about humans behave and how, how what human nature is. So the reader moves into the house and unpacks her baggage, literally. Um, And, uh, fills the closets and, and and lays down carpets and puts up pictures. And then she starts to explore the house. She finds the nooks and crannies. She tries to see if the bedroom feels like home. Um, and and the, does the hallway meet her expectations for how humans ought to behave and, and live? Um, and the house comes alive in that moment when the reader has moved in. So Every story the author creates is only a shell of a story. The, the story is filled in and made alive by the reader. It's every reading is a collaborative effort mm. between mm. the reader and the writer. And so if you build the same house and 100 different readers move into it, they are going to live 100 different lives. And therefore, you get 100 different readings. Um, that's what it is. Uh, and that's something that actually took me a long time to accept um, uh, mm. that, that I cannot, in fact, control what that ultimate life is going to be. And um, sometimes... What
0: was hard for you about accepting that? um,
1: Because sometimes when you write fiction, you come into it with the idea that there's a very clear message you want to communicate, a very Mm -hmm. important thing you want to say. And sometimes readers will not read that thing out of it. They will read something else entirely different. And I think it's very hard for writers who are very passionate about communicating a thing to say I have to accept that because this is not one of those art forms where I'm not writing a legal brief where there is a clear argument to be made. And I I better make sure that the judge got it. Um, (laughs) When you're writing fiction, that is not what your goal is. And you cannot do that. And that was hard for me to accept. But this idea that you're building something open and you have to let other people fill it. Um, that was something that I had to sort of eventually get at. But it's kind of fun for me to go back and and read the story and hear from Ray and from Tochi and you um, this importance of the 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 empty shell, the the mm. paper shell of mm. quiet. Turns out the the paper shell of quiet is a great metaphor for a story too, mm. um, which I hadn't even thought mm. of at the mm. time I wrote it.
0: And it's so cool. Like you talked about the sort of writing and reading as as being a collaborative act, and we have this sort of It's often a collaborative act that happens asynchronously, almost always, and uh, the collaborators are sort of unaware of the primary experience that each other are having. But we're kind of in this special fun moment of like, we're closer to that, to the act of collaboration. And so it's fun to see you kind of re-engage with the story. I wonder just maybe we can play a little bit more before we do the next round of readings. Uh, Tochiure, what's, what's coming up for you as you hear Ken kind of respond to your own initial
2: responses. I love that imagery of the writer is having built a house for the reader to move into um, in part because it's so much less mercantile and commercial than the, metaphor that I'd been living with, which is that the writer and reader are engaging in a sort of contract. (laughs) 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 Like, you know, that the, the, you know, the, the idea of complicity in that metaphor is, is much more, it feels much more mercenary um, than this idea of the writer having built a place where the reader can bring their own experiences and have their own unique, because there there's that, there's that idea of shelter. Right. And, you know, you don't necessarily get that with a contract With a contract. It's all about responsibility and, and what responsibilities you're abdicating, you know, what rights you're abrogating, what rights you're accumulating, all of that. But, you know, the, the idea, the, the idea of finding shelter in a story is Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. potent. Mm It's mm. so potent. Even if it's it's not, you know, particularly, uh, you know, warm escapist tale or whatever, even if it's something that's very, that can be dark and dire or what have you, there's still sort of shelter in that in a way. And I don't know, I just really, I really like that recasting of the relationship mm. between the mm. writer and reader.
0: Mm. Yeah, beautiful. How about you, Ray?
3: Uh, I, yeah, I, I love this. And, uh, and it's, it does seem like a, that this whole conversation is full of coincidences, because I was just talking about a very similar thing. Uh, as Andy knows, I'm very into uh, semiotics. I have been since I was uh, uh, in university, and it kind of changed my whole view of the world. And, and the semiotics, there's sort of two different ways to look at it. You could look at signal and receiver, that really basic kind of, I'm a person who creates a message. And then I send the message and then the message is received, right? Um, but then Charles Sanders Peirce had this much more sophisticated idea about how this works, which is, you know, there's there's the object in the world, there's the thing that represents the object, and there's the mind that interprets that object, right? And without that, those three things together, there is no sign. Um, mm. there's, there's nothing is communicated without mm. the mind inter- interpreting. And I love I love thinking of it that way for me as a as a as a writer because I think of so for me, there's this literal sense in which there is no story. Like, and it's not some sort of metaphysical thing. There literally is no story uh, when the story when the book is closed. The story only exists when the book has been opened and someone is reading what has been written by the writer and interpreting it with their own mind. Otherwise, the story simply doesn't exist. It's like, um, it's the difference between what you call a sign and a sign vehicle. So a stop sign is not a sign. It's a sign vehicle, meaning that it could become a sign, <laughs> right? But it can only be a sign if a person sees the stop sign who understands what a stop sign is and then forms, has a precon, you know, the preconceived notion of what to do when they see that thing and then does it. And that, for me, you take that level of sophistication, you multiply it on an infinite level, and then you see the sophisticated act of this braid, this weaving of semiotic richness that occurs when a human being reads the creation of another human being, and together they weave this this thick, this dense carpet of meaning Mm. together. For me, that's, Mm. that's, that's where it's at. Because if you're just a writer and you're writing away at the keyboard, right, and then you never send the story out. It's just a stop sign in a tree, you know, hidden <laughs> from the world, and nobody, nobody reads it. So it's it only has the potential to be a sign. It's not a sign. So mm. so this this is I I, I completely, um, I, I am sometimes astounded at how magical, uh, this thing that happens with literature is. Sometimes you read a book that was written by someone, you know. Uh, a thousand years ago, and they're they're there, they're alive. Their ideas are alive, and they're and they're alive inside you, mm-hmm. literally inside you. And I just think it's it's uh, it's about as mystical as you could get, you know. Yeah.
0: Well, and and uh, I I sign on all that, and just to underline that there is something, there is a sign for the person making the sign, or perhaps there are many signs for the person crafting this. That you're taking these. Elements, these pixels or these marks on a piece of paper, and as you make them, you are the mind who is also being made by them. Right? There's this really wonderful quality in which the carpenter can find uh, shelter in her own crafts, craftsman work as she builds it, and maybe when it's done, there's that moment where you sort of have to let it go, as Ken said, like after. But in the building of it, there's something sheltering there, and and the characters and the ideas come alive in a way that is so different than there's just something really special in the crafting as well that I want to underline here I think that feels really important as you name that relationship between the sign and the and the reader well there's
3: a sense I think just to to round that out a little bit Um, that the self is a dialogic entity within itself. So Mm, there's mm. always a reader of signs within the mind, right? And it's never the same as the person who created them because it's always a later instance of you, right? (laughs) And so you can never be anything but yet another reader of your own work. That's why sometimes people will say like to me, like, well, what do you think? And I'll say, well, I am one reader of (laughs) of what I've written, but I'm not the same person as I was when I wrote it. Mm -hmm. So Mm. so my opinion Mm. is only one of many.
0: Mm, right. Mm. Is there any? Uh, I, I want to play maybe for another two or three minutes here, but I, I'm noticing a part of me that wants to assign kind of a, a moral value or or worthiness to the 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 creator of the signs, the self who is making the signs and then reading them, and and then there's another part of me that's like maybe that's a bridge too far, but I'm just curious to hear from any of you, like. I don't know, there's there's a way in which uh, what what you're saying hear right here is really true, Ray, that you are not the person who wrote the book. And there's something about the, in the writing of the book, you have become a kind of person that you wouldn't have become had you not written it. And so like, there's a way in which I, I trust you as a craftsperson. And I trust your perspective on the craft, even if you also are humble enough to admit that you don't have all of the answers. I just wonder like, and so then a part of me wants to go a step further and be like so your your point of view is more valuable than any other point of view as it relates to the story and I and I wonder how you all as sort of creators how you relate to that is there any primacy to the point of view of the craftsperson or is it really just open open territory once the once the work is done
1: Well I mean I want to say a few things about this cuz this is something that's very important to me um and I I I think I think it's very easy um in this day and age for us to fall into the position of there is no primacy that every view is equally valid and i actually don't really agree with that um and i i want to push back a little bit against that um i think the key for me is this idea that a reading is a collaboration and it has to be a collaboration so i uh, i do think you know in so because i'm a lawyer so like tochi's i'm in this way but there is this concept of moral rights related to copyright in mm, European mm. traditions, which is absent from the Anglo-American tradition. Uh, but if you do any kind of publishing or work, you will hear moral rights mentioned. Um, and moral rights is nebulous and, and confusing, but it is this idea that the creator of a work has certain a certain relationship to that work that needs to be respected, that, that the work is, in some very essential way, a part of that person. That that there is something worthy of, mm. of dignity. Mm. Even if it's the, the l- most smallest possible artistic thing you can think of. It's It's a haiku, a, a tiny, you know, a tiny mm. thing. There is something about the soul of the person who created it in that thing that needs to be respected. And I do really hold to it. Um, The reason I say this is because a lot of us as writers in this day and age write about topics that are deeply emotional and deeply important to us. Um, If you write about the Holocaust, if you write about the crimes of uh, unit 731 during uh, the second world war, if you write about enslavement, if you write about genocide. So you write these stories and there is something deeply Human deeply important in them, and someone comes along to read the story and they decide to interpret as a hostile, you know, hostile manner. They interpret mm. it as a justification for genocide. They interpret it as this is exactly exactly why these people are terrible, etc. That's what I call a hostile reading. And hostile readings, in my view, are not to be given the same respect as mm. empathetic readings. Mm. Mm. There is mm. a manner in which you give an empathetic, rehabilitative, or some a a reading that grows rather than a a reading that tries to diminish or to Mm, to mm. to harm so i think there's a distinction between those kind of readings so Mm. i don't agree that all readings are equally valid um i do believe empathetic readings are to be given more power beautiful
0: that is that really lands with me thanks thanks ken
1: no
3: I i think that's absolutely right um and I think it has it has to do also with that that concept of I mean just because I'm not the same person exactly that I am now when I wrote that I that I was when I wrote a thing you think about the personality I think of it as, as an aggregate think of it as like a jar filled with stones, right Slowly over your life, you take things out and you put other things in but there is an aggregate. there's always. A, a, a continuous sense of an individual as you move along there's no such thing as the you know just because you're not the same person that you were 20 years ago that doesn't mean there isn't a link between mm-hmm. you now and you 20 years ago and you do have this authority as that person to take possession of the things uh you know in your own life um i think that that idea of hostile reading is mm-hmm. a really interesting one I, I would love to be able to come back to that at some point because that is so important um Charles Sanders, Sanders Peirce said, and I thought it was a great quote, that everywhere on the city of philosophy, there should be one sign written, do not block the way of inquiry. And that should be the only law.
0: <sighs> mm. Yeah, hostile reading by its nature is a, a wall it, that, that collaboration cannot exist in a hostile reading it's designed to destroy as opposed to, to, to build up or to deepen. Yeah. Thanks for that. Ray.
2: Tochi last last word
0: on this theme before
2: we hear, hear a reading from you. Oh my goodness. Um, Y'all have been taking me to church. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think, I think what, what Ken has said really spoke to attention that I've been dealing with in my artistic life. And, you know, it's the, I, the idea of, you know, is there such a thing as like an irresponsible novel, right? Or an irresponsible piece of art, right? And I found myself asking that question after after rereading, um, I believe it was um, Native Son by Richard Wright um, and, you know, revisiting the reaction to the character of Bigger Thomas who uh, you know, upon publication, received all this backlash from the black community, particularly uh, like a slice of the of the black community that was primarily upper middle class and very much focused on respectability politics. They saw in Bigger Thomas the embodiment of so many of the pathologies that they had gone to great pains to convince the white majority that mm. black people black people in America uh, did not contain. And so the question that arises: Should Richard Wright have written and published this book? Right, and I, I try to stay away from the question of should as much as possible, um, because you know the alternate universe is that you know we live in a world that you know where Richard Wright didn't write and publish *Native Son*, and that deprives you know a whole swath of people across across hundreds of years of their own ability to have a relationship with this work and to interpret the work, um, all because of some malicious or hostile interpretations or reactions to that work. And so there's this idea that I've been dueling with, which is the the responsibility of the reader. Um, And another instance in which this was brought to light for me was with Attack on Titan, So there's a twist in season three of Attack on Titan that uh, alludes to very heavily um, the the oppression and persecution of uh, Jews during the Second World War. And there was and in this sort of age of think pieces, (laughs) there was this swath of think pieces that saw in those depictions a an endorsement of behavior per- perpetrated by um, by Nazis mm-hmm. in Germany, right? Mm-hmm. And then there was sort of backlash to the backlash, which was like, no, this is a condemnation of, you know, these very actions and these very perspectives and whatnot. And, you know, when there is this idea of a sort of moral responsibility imbued in the creator, then it can very easily turn into, I think, falling prey to the opinions of the hostile interpretation such that you're like, Oh, I should not have done this.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: mm-hmm. you know, at the exclusion of all other possible interpretations of a thing. And so that's just like a, a space that I'd been, that I'd been living in a lot. And I, I don't know, I think I, I like, I've also been thinking about, um, and it's funny cause the the first generation child in me is very much bristling against this, but, you know, the emotional toll that writing and writing a particular tale can take on a person, on a, on a creator. It's something that I'm dealing with now with my current work in progress, which is something that when I first proposed it, I was in a very angry place, um, even though it may not have seemed like that uh, outwardly. I was in a very angry place. It was very, uh, I felt very mean. And so I was going to write this, like, this very caustic and, and satirical book. Um, and the book got bought and then a whole bunch of life stuff happened in the interim and things got better and my mood improved and spiritually I was in a much better place. But then I had to sit down and write this book. <laughs> and so I, I, and I felt resentful because I had to go back to that place where I was just like my, my, I was in a very sort of, uh, you know, emotionally, like it was a bit of arrested development emotionally mm. i had to it, mm. it felt as though i had to regress and so i keep having to essentially like come up for air while working on this book and and like climb out of that place and i think that you know in the same way that that going through you know war or being in the trenches can confer a sort of authority i do think that sort of thing um, you know enduring an experience uh, during the act of creation does imbue a certain authority mm. to mm. the mm. creator um, mm. and so like listening to listening to ken and and listening to ray it's very much like it's helped to clear a lot of the fog that i've been living in with regards to these very issues mm.
0: Mm. And I'm in touch, Tochi, I don't know if you will relate to this, but I feel like as you also like wrestle with the regression and the coming up for error, I kind of hear you holding the the you that was angry with a bit more also compassion of like, there was something you needed to say, and I committed to helping you say it. I'm not there yet, but how do I go in and then also take care of who I am now? So there's this sort of relationship you have with the self that made the book proposal and, and holding that with compassion feels really important too.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Well, maybe uh, this is a nice moment then, Tochi, to to for to pass the sort of uh, the reader mic over to you and and take us into something else. And again, we don't know what it's going to be, so give us a little context, and we'll see where that that takes our conversation next.
2: Certainly. So I'm going to be reading uh, a brief scene from Goliath, which. Uh, By the time this uh, episode airs, we'll have uh, been out for a few months. Uh, The publication date is January 25th, available everywhere. Books are sold. That's my birthday. Uh, No, I'm just kidding.
0: (laughs) I think we weren't recording, but earlier Ray shared that his book is coming out on Tochi's birthday, which is one of many coincidences. Uh, A bit of cosmic choreography. Yeah. yeah. I wish January 24th was my
2: birthday now, but sadly it's not.
0: (laughs) <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry to
2: interrupt. No, certainly. And so, you know, very briefly, you know, Goliath is set in the 2050s. And the the sort of context of the story world is that uh a lot of folks with you know sort of racial and socioeconomic privilege have fled to colonies in space, and Earth is uh currently in the midst, it's it's in a sort of post-climate event state. Um it's very much uh, the, the picture that has been painted by like IPCC reports that, you know, by the time we reach 2050, you know, we will have, you know, it'll be the book of revelations. And so, so much of, of our worst fears with regards to climate change and, and radiation poisoning and all of that have been realized on earth. And those with, uh, privilege have been able to leave and, The book concerns itself with a you know this young this young couple from the space colonies a sort of generation later that very much wants to return to earth um, as a way to sort of fix their broken relationship and uh this scene that that i'm reading will be uh is centered on um, one member of the couple who is going on ahead to sort of make a home for Mm. for his partner Um, it's also, uh, thematically a, a play on the relationship between King David, uh, from the old Testament and, uh, Jonathan. Hmm. Jonathan's first month back on earth was by turns moody and decadent words and the whistling of the wind sang to him in not ballads, purring, cantilating, confessing the psychic toll of millennial hedonism but the fog and falsettos that settled over the empty and silent landscape in the autumn mornings would break his heart every time he was awake to see it. The others moved about him in slow tempos and moaned echoes, time passed as a song. The evening's sybaritic intemperance would turn the block of houses, the makeshift neighborhood, into an existential wasteland with he, and Eamon and the recumbent intoxicated zombified women who kept them and their drugs company, all waiting for Godot. Someone had spray painted "EXO" and radiation tag on each of the houses, an emoticon for a kiss and a hug, or shorthand for the ecstasy and oxycodone they guzzled every night. And all the while, one question threaded itself around Jonathan's thoughts. Would David enjoy it here? The two of them, Jonathan and Eamon, walked the neighborhood as red-lit the landscape and the leaves fell from tree branches in shades of rose and orange. Find one you like and figure out who owns it, Eamon told him. how much did you pay for yours? The leaves disintegrated beneath their unlaced boots. Eamon stuffed his hands into his pockets, hiked his shoulders up against a breeze that wasn't there, about 3,000. His lumberjack flannel put him in relief against the autumn. Place had been abandoned for a couple of years, belonged to some woman, bought it from her son. And when I got there, I went upstairs and all her stuff was still there furniture, family pictures, a bunch of knickknacks and old kids' toys in a steamer trunk. There were a couple of them, actually. Steamer trunks. Didn't feel right opening them, and a couple of them were rusted shut, so I couldn't even if I wanted to. She even had this picture of some senator, first black U.S. senator from Connecticut or something. Had it facing this picture of white Jesus so that it looked like the guy was praying to him. The way the light fell through the rafters, that's what it looked like. How's the place fixed up? Oh, you mean like electricity? Jonathan nodded had to light half the place with oil lamps they rounded a corner anybody else live in the area all the natives moved out a long time ago Shit, the place is mostly scrub at this point the few houses there are they're they're more out of defiance than anything else natural laws say they're supposed to have crumbled by now but damn the natural laws are right whole place has turned from city to country He brought up a hollow that showed the neighborhood from above, then swooped down to focus on a few neighborhood blocks. The only house nearby where the green silhouette indicated Eamon's was a cinder block project house. Yale School of Architecture used to do this thing where a bunch of the architecture students would compete to build an affordable housing unit for the community. He snickered. Then the cerulean hollow blinked into nothingness. They now walked by staggered rows of thick trunk trees with dumped boats and hot tubs where their roots rose like tumors or varicose veins through the ground. Railroad tiles lay stacked like grave markers where houses used to be. A young couple necked in one of the abandoned boats. When they could no longer hear the lovemaking, Eamon leaned into Jonathan. The guy was killed in that boat not too far back. He shrugged again, one of those protection from the cold shrugs. Screw it, right? The quieter nights would see them climbing the abandoned air towers, scaling the heights of the air filtration stations, and Jonathan having succeeded at not falling through a crumbling roof, they would sit or lie and smoke while they made a makeshift graveyard of their empty beer cans. Eamon, on their first night, pointed out the five tallest buildings. Jonathan felt it was some sort of a rite of passage. If you're going to come here, know your place. Everyone who lives in a neighborhood belongs to it. You can't opt out, not unless you leave. There was the Connecticut Financial Center, the building at 360 State Street, the Knights of Columbus building that had been moved closer to Union Station, the Klein Biology Tower, and the Crown Towers. And pretty soon after, they took to identifying the lesser artifacts dotted the city. The cathedrals, the schools, the gated courtyards of Yale's residential colleges, the Ivy Quarters Gothic architecture choked with massive vines that wound their way through windows and around walls, made the place feel all the more haunted. Whatever noise was made here, it was only quiet licentiousness that rustled in the hammocks, strung up there or lay in the grass or necked in the hallways or shot up under the arches. That area of town still glowed blue under the protective dome of a radiation shield, a gauzy barrel frontier fantasy so close as to be touched.:
0: mm. Mm. Thank you, Tochi.: Ray, what are you uh, in touch with as you, as you hear this slice of this larger story that Tochi shared?
3: I think Tochi is a writer that uh, is very much uh, after my own, like, heart, you know, he's writing the kind of things that, um, well, to back up a little bit, maybe the one of the reasons I became a writer when I was a a kid, maybe the one of the reasons I actually started putting pen to paper was I just found um, the sense of being able to inhabit a world in a book insufficient. And I wanted that very much. Um, I wanted to be able to be inside uh, these worlds, um, and and there's there's nothing that I think I love more than these finely drawn descriptions that allow you to just inhabit a place, like really feel it. You know, um, it's something that I, I I strive to do very well. Uh, you know, as as a writer, like, I really, really think about it a lot. How do you set atmosphere? How do you create that sphere within which, or maybe that house, to come back to, to Ken's metaphor, yes. how do you yeah. build that house? That's, how do you create that space in which a reader can move around and, and live? Um, a friend of mine said about one of my works, and I, and I thought it was really a big compliment, that he felt like he could turn down any side street and it would take him somewhere else. And that's what I felt listening to that. Like mm, you just felt mm, like you could mm. you could just leave the characters. You could let them walk off and do their thing. and you could just walk into a store and experience something else, go around a corner and do your own thing in that space. Uh. I really I really love that. Um, I, I tend to to counterbalance that with not describing my my main characters uh, very closely or at all quite often. Um, and that's something that I learned from comic books. Um, if you look at Tintin, for example, you notice that the, the, the it's actually drawn in two completely different styles, right? There's the background, which is fully realized. It's a world that you can live in. And then there's Tintin, who's just a sketch, like just a cartoon. He's, there's, he's empty, right? And so you can project yourself into that space and be in that world. Um, That's all to say that that was, that was a very beautiful um, passage. And I I think it also, I have this set of cards. I'll show you one of them that I use to remind myself of things in writing. And it just says, make the strange mundane.
0: Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) You know, uh, the radiation sphere was like, yeah, wait, just, but the mundanity of that. And the, like the beauty, the beauty of it even. Right. This is the yeah.
3: world these this is the world these people live in. And for them, the things that, that are strange to you are just their world. Uh just brilliantly done.
0: Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Ken, how about you? Uh so this passage exemplifies, you know, like Ray was saying, a lot of the things I um I love about uh, Tochi's work. Um and what I want to focus on here a little bit is this sense I got from the passage of the way we live our lives now in such a deeply saturated symbolic manner. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to explain what I mean. Um, what is really striking to me about uh, the world that Jonathan is walking through is how much of it is already how many stories are, are already there and how many stories are, are, are forever impossible to interpret like those locked steamer trunks. Um, the idea is this, you know, I, I, as a writer, I, I, I've been very obsessed with this idea that we live our lives, our own real lives, as though we're telling the story. Uh, and that is what we do. We're trying to construct a narrative that we can pass on to those who come after us. We're trying to, perform a story that makes sense to us. We're trying to leave a legacy that in some ways allows us to say we live according to the values we hold dear. That's what we do. We spend our entire lives trying to shape and craft that narrative that make us feel like we, we lived a life worth living. And the thing is that's true of everybody, every single person um, who's ever lived and they have stories that are worthy of being remembered and known. And one of the great tragedies of of human of the human condition is that most of us live lives of quiet desperation where the stories are not known. Um, and and there are no empathetic readings of our life stories. Um, and this is what I was hearing. I, I heard about that house whose inhabitants lived a wonderful life, who 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 are the people who lived that life with those steamer trunks and those images, those pictures casting that beautiful light? Jonathan's walking through this city of ghosts, and you know, I I think about the community that was there, that was destroyed, that was driven away, that was gone, and what a beautiful collective story they wove that they told, mm-hmm. and and now yeah. it's it's a it's a it's a ruined civilization, and and Jonathan and his friends are coming through as archaeologists trying to make a new life on top of these ruins. I also think about just the way Toshi uses the language itself to highlight the fact that the English language itself is a layer, is Mm. made up of layers of ruins. Um, You know, Mm. the references to Godot, to the Bible, uh, the Latin and Greek roots, the various pieces derived from French. You know, the English language itself is a record of conquest, of adaptation, of ruins, of Renaissances of reincorporation of the past. English is not, in fact, one language, but a great hodgepodge of so many civilizations and so many mm. wonderful languages in the past. And 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 Tochi was very deliberate in using these words that summon forth that layered richness. We walk through ghosts, just like Jonathan and his friend. They walk through ghosts, haunted these haunted hallways. We. Just by speaking, are speaking the words of ghosts. You know, like Ray was saying earlier, each time we speak and use these Latin roots, we are evoking, in some sense, the spirit of Cicero. We are evoking, in some sense, um, Caesar. We are we are literally, with each breath, invoking ghosts. Um, and 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 Tochi's work is very good about bringing that richness of of our layer language and culture to the forefront. Um, and I just think. So hard about the people who are no longer there, who are in that story, who whose lives are now just a shell left behind. Mm. Um, and I think mm. this this one detail really struck me, and I just want to bring it up. It might seem like a bit of a tangent, but that part where you know the architectural students compete to design projects that really resonated with me because so much of our Policy making seems to be this idea that elites get to dictate how communities ought to live and behave. That they can somehow imagine and fix and save um, the the people um, whose lives need no saving other than being left alone to do as they would like. There was a community there; it was functioning perfectly fine uh, until somebody decided that you know, no, it's not. We're going to do economic development. So let's drive this community away. Let's destroy it. Uh, and now we have to design projects. We have to come in here as bureaucrats and fix the problem that we created in the first place. <laughs> um, I know it's a tangent, but it, it, it really is important to me to think about mm. the mm. stories are destroyed and the stories that we never even care about empathetically reading.
0: Mm. So. Mm. Well, and the, there is a sort of tragic beauty in the ruins, which is to say that there don't seem to be any bureaucrats around anymore to try and save anyone? So, so there's. A, Eamon says something like, you know, everyone kind of knows the rules here, or, or knows can't quite remember the line, but it's like, so if you stay, like unless you leave, like we got to figure it out together, and that invitation to to sort of step into to a possibility that that is sadly someone like many others tragedies and and yet there's that like beauty and hope and you you take us into that tochi with a, so many subtle details with the leaves crunch to dust under their feet the sort of the vibrancy of the exo spray paint and what and there's a bit of that what is the symbology there is it about loves and hugs and kisses or ecstasy and and oxytocin you know like just sort of Jonathan's discovery of the ruins becomes a a vessel for us to kind of be in that possibility. And then maybe the last thing I'll say before I'd love to hear Tochi, what's coming up for you as you hear us play is your insight, Ken, that, that this sort of classic phrase, men live lives of quiet desperation. Like the source of that desperation is the not being seen is the fear or the the fear that your story won't be told to anyone or the active repression of your opportunity to tell that story to anyone that that is at least a part of the desperation. And you can kind of see that. in Jonathan's sort of like, what will David think? What can I show him? What, what will he be in touch with when he arrives here? How can I make this a place where he can see himself in with me, with us together and, and, And a little bit of that, there is a little bit of that, like, love there, but also that desperation of, like, I really, this has to
2: work. How do I make this work? So thank you, Tochi, for taking us into that. Oh, my goodness. Um, Listening to you all talk, it's like, it's like the phrase mission accomplished is beating in neon, like, right (laughs) next to my heart. Um, Like, y'all got it. (laughs) Like, you know, that's the tweet. Um, No, I, I mean, the you know, them Jonathan and even walking through a city of ghosts is so, is such an evocative distillation of what I've tried to do in this scene and through a lot of the book, really. Um, So much of Goliath is a sort of play on and remix of frontier narratives, um, Hmm. which is something I, you know, I read a lot in Westerns um, and the way in which they're, they're, written primarily for the american majority is that you know the main characters which are more often than not white um go out into this you know what is often painted as a blank canvas um to use an odd phrase um to sort of either remake their life or to make a new life there and it's a place where they can sort of um at least believe that they're going to solve their problems or, you know, maybe they're running away from debts or or what have you. And so i wanted to, but at the same time, you know, very often we don't get a picture at all of who and what was there before, um, who and what was there before the main mm, characters mm, arrived. Mm. And that was something that I very much wanted to focus on. Like people lived here. People lived here, and I wanted to render that as tangibly uh, as possible. Um, and I think that goes to a lot of what Ray was saying about the world building. I, I like. I love that idea of, as a reader, you know, being secure in the knowledge that you know, you could, you could let the, you know, the characters that you're following go off and do their thing. And you could just sort of explore. It's almost like open world gaming, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, you don't have yeah, to yeah. focus on the main story, the main quest, the main narrative, you can go off and do your own side quests and whatnot. And, and to hear that said about, about this book is like one of the highest compliments. Um, Cause it means that I, like, I, I've, I've built, at least to the best of my abilities, you know, a fully realized world that, you know, you can, you can tap into whatever detail and, and find this wealth of history behind it. Um, and so it's, I'm very like, that's where so, so much of the mission accomplished, um, Mm. comes Mm. from, but also like, I, I can't tell you how happy I am, Ken, that you zeroed in on the detail about the uh, architecture student. (laughs) oh <laughs> uh, because like also that's a real thing um but also it to me was a detail detail that was so emblematic of a lot of what I wanted to get at in the book which is you know oftentimes you know quote unquote urban decay is an organized thing like it's a deliberate thing um the allocation and taking away of resources for a particular community it's all deliberate you know ghettos aren't the result of any sort of natural pathology mm, mm, you know coming mm. from the residents they're they're organized they're built they're they're unnatural creations um, that are built by state policy you know you look at where grocery stores are and aren't and you look at where fast food places are and aren't Mm-hmm. and you look at where cops are and aren't and all of that has policy behind that all of that every single one of those things has policy behind it um and like that i don't know i so much of what you all were saying was like i just kept being like yes 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 they got yes 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 mm-hmm. um but also too like i wanted to i uh, You know, with particularly with that passage, I wanted to, you know, with all of that said, have Jonathan still in this haze of romanticization of this place that he's entered into and his sort of mission, which is that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to fix my relationship by moving to this new by, you know, moving to this new place and bringing my partner with me. Um, I hope he likes it. Um, And so so much of the language is like caught up in that as well. Um, but yeah, no, I, I was just really, I just really appreciated all of your, all of your reactions to this, um, you know, because it it did feel, I know we, you know, we've spoken earlier about, about interpretations and how, um, each reader's interaction with a text is unique, um, and And oftentimes out out of the hands of the the writer, of the creator. Um, but it really does feel like y'all were picking up what I put down. Mm.
0: Um, mm. So. I'm in touch with like this is maybe catching a bit of this this insight that we deep into that the craftsperson does have some sort of unique and worthy vantage on their work uh, that they can't control once the work is complete. But nonetheless, like you, Like you built it and you're like, does anyone want to live here? Do they, do they see, do they notice this nook that I built? Cause I like, I love this nook down here. And then I like, someone sees it and you're like, yes, you know, like that's, that's just really beautiful to, to share
2: that. Um, Yeah. It's like, it's like, oh man, I put so much effort into these flying buttresses and then like somebody (laughs) moves in and it's like, yo, those flying buttresses are really cool. And we're just like, yeah, so good. (laughs)
3: That reminds me of this story that Frank Lloyd Wright used to visit people who were living in the houses that he built. And of course, he would design the furniture and all the decor and he would move their furniture back. (laughs) to where he had <laughs> placed it originally. Like w- while he was talking to them in their living room, he would be moving furniture back to his oh, original shit. <laughs> I was thinking it's like that's exactly the opposite of what Ken was talking about. <laughs> you know, was a to be in, Wrinkler, Wrinkler Wright was like, no, damn it. This chair goes here.
1: Right, <laughs> right. Well you said it reminds me of um One of the reasons I so enjoy uh, the new expansion to Animal Crossing is because, you know, in vacation (laughs) homes, you do get to design vacation homes exactly the way you want them to be. And uh, they always appreciate it, no matter what you do. They always love it. (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: Uh, uh. There is something, uh, like, as a creator, whether you're a creator of something that many many, many people engage with or a creator of something that you and maybe a few others engage with. There's something about that capacity to make a choice that is so empowering and meaningful, like to say, this goes here and not here, or I'm going to notice this and leave out that. And, and many of those choices are likely not conscious in the in the sort of micro you're just sort of flowing and going but that at the macro the sense of like there is agency even in the sort of surprise and the discovery and i wonder yeah, um it, yeah, it feels
2: like it feels like making an album as opposed to making tracks in a playlist
0: mm, mm, mm.
2: um like you can listen to the tracks in whatever order in an album generally but there's a there's There's intention behind the tracks in the album being ordered the way that they're ordered and being sequenced the way that they're sequenced um, that you don't necessarily get in your experience as a listener if you don't listen to them in that particular order. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what it feels like with novel writing. Like there's there's intention behind everything. Um, There's there's intention behind the structuring and the ordering of these things and the placement of these things. That isn't to say that, you know, you can't enjoy any sort of, you know, unorthodox reading of, of a book, but, um, you know, so much of the experience is, is, is designed to, to really, allow for that moment when things click into place if you are reading it sort of like straight through, um, so to speak. But at, you know, at the same time you'll have books like House of Leaves, which is very much designed to not be read straightforwardly. <laughs> you know, I just have these you know these images, you know I, I, I read a lot of that book on um, Metro North trains because I was I was commuting back and forth between Connecticut and New York at the time. So I would be hunched over in my seat with the book upside down <laughs> and like sideways and <laughs> wondering what people, what fellow commuters were thinking as they would look at me, you know, constantly rearranging this thing, flipping back and forth and all of that. So, I, you know, all of which is to say that there, you know, there is intention behind the way yeah. that I mean, that's the designed, sort of, yeah. uh, I'm
0: blanking on his name. What is it, like, Danis Luski or something like yeah, that? Daniel yeah, Daniel Luski,
2: I want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And he, like, that's like a real, he's sort of really going for uh, some sort of, like, if we think of the architecture analogy, he's sort of going like, I'm going to deconstruct what you think of as a house and, and <laughs> yes. put familiar parts together in ways that are sh- sort of really disturbingly unfamiliar. And you yes. have a choice to make. Are you going to try and find your way into this sort of? Construction? Or are you just going to look at it and like walk away? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. um I'm curious. We have a little over thirty minutes left, and I want to make sure we have time to hear from Ray and and riff a bit on what you brought today, Ray, and then and then land the plane at eleven thirty as as we have scheduled. So uh maybe if there's any any other word or two that uh, Ken or Ray you want to throw in here before we transition over to your story, Ray about just this piece that we're on uh
3: i i want to say that the this story was powerful enough and and the mention of of frontiers was powerful enough that i have actually changed uh what i will read from (laughs) because i want it to kind of uh to mirror and be in conversation with what with what we just Mm. heard Mm. my my Mm. word on that
0: Well, maybe we should hear that then. Maybe that's the that's the conversational response that, that we're ready for. So, um, Ray, why don't you take us into that?
3: So uh, this is from a story called Incident at San Juan Batista. Uh, this is a story that I published a few years ago in Asimov's. And um, it irritated some people to a degree because it was in Asimov's, which is very much a science fiction uh uh, you know magazine but this story was actually about basically what it's about is a man who a gunslinger a, like a, a professional killer basically who is at a hotel waiting to kill a man and while he is there he sleeps with a prostitute at the hotel and uh she turns out to be a an interdimensional, time traveler that has basically been returning to San Juan Batista over and over and over and over again until she's invested the entire town with herself. So she's played the role of every single different person in the, in this town. And she she creates this elaborate sort of conspiracy around this man. But this moment is from before all those revelations when it just feels very much like a Western uh, story. So mm. you know, that's the mm. background on this. August opened his eyes. The sun that came streaming into the room through the chintz curtains lighted up Madeline's profile. She was dressed only in her blue silk robe. He remembered the robe from the night before. She'd worn it when they'd smoked a cheroot together at the window after the first time. She'd brought the robe with her to to his room in a black leather bag like a doctor's bag. He'd left the gambling table, gone to his room with a look to her as he left, and minutes later, she'd been there with a soft knock, standing in the hallway in the tessellated light of the hall's oil lamp and the laughter drifting up from the saloon like a doctor on a call. Madeline had one leg up on a cane-bottomed chair. She dipped a straight razor into a chipped lacquer basin on the dresser table, and with a flick of her wrist, she stripped the excess water from the blade then brought its edge to her leg and drew it slowly against the grain, up a calf the color of winter sunlight. Her face was indifferent, blank of expression. The same as it had been when they had smoked the trude at the window, his arm around her shoulders, leaning into the scent of her hair before going back to bed. The same as it had been when she lay there beneath him, eyes glittering in the dark like a necklace dropped in a shallow stream. He had seen that lack of expression before on a different face. He'd been on a streetcar in New York before he was August, back when he was just a nameplate over a New York door, Hiram Anderson, dentist, up a narrow staircase in lower Manhattan. It had been just past dawn, the streetcar half empty, 4th Avenue quiet enough to hear the clopping of the streetcar horse's hooves. Standing across from him in a black day dress with a high lace collar, the girl had stared out the window with that same look uncomposed, he thought. Without the fakery he saw in faces all around him every day, without the way people were always playing a theme of themselves for the strangers around them, like a single violin scraping away, never allowing the music to fade. Not her, no. She just sat there, face empty, hands at her sides. Her skin had been so white it shone like silver in the rain-gray morning light. And the other passengers had not noticed her. But then why would they? Most people didn't notice anything, ever. They wouldn't notice if a green-eyed tiger wrote the streetcar. Here among them was something beautiful and strange, but they just nodded off, locked in the worlds of their newspapers, digesting their breakfasts in a haze. Her eyes had been jewel, a jewel tint he could not make out, a dark blue, a deep green. He tried to catch her gaze as the streetcar's horses lurched forward from each intersection. But though he leaned in a bit, encroaching into her view, she never glanced at him. He had to get off the streetcar eventually, missing his own stop, walking back up the avenue in a dirty rain, with the day's newspaper protecting his boulder cap from the wet, rushing to make his first appointment. And she lodged in his memory like a seam of quartz. He looked for her each day on the streetcar and thought of her while his fingers were in some Brooklyn clerk's mouth, probing a rotted tooth. Without the color of her eyes or how she might move if she were standing, she was like the limbless torso of a statue in a museum. Beauty, incomplete. He went back to her image again and again. That had been his last year in New York. Had seeing her on the streetcar done it, nudged him out of his life, he couldn't say. In the summer, he'd sold his practice to an Italian and his family, 10 dark-haired children in immaculate suits and dresses, fingering the equipment and taking turns spinning in the chair. He bought a few sturdy traveling suits. Before boarding the Union Pacific's Platte Valley route in Omaha, he purchased a Colt single-action Army peacemaker. He had missed the California gold by decades, but he found his true self in the West when he killed a drunk horse thief in Los Angeles. The killing had been almost an accident. He'd bumped into the staggering thief, then kept walking, mumbling an apology, but the drunk man shouted at him and then drew on him. And the man would have killed him, but his gun butt had tangled in a tassel of his fancy jacket, and with one swift, unthinking action, Hiram Anderson had drawn his peacemaker and blown the man's brains out the back of his head. Immediately, the man's eyes had emptied. he dropped in the dust, like laundry fallen from a cart. Hiram Anderson changed his name to August Sutherland two months later. He changed it just by telling the new name to the men around him at the bar, clapping him on the back. Afterwards, he kept on telling it to the sweat-stained men of California and the ladies in the saloons they all shared in common. It was a name he'd read out of a book. Not the name of a gunfighter, but of a man in one of those balloon stories where they fight pygmies or something in Africa and their contraption crashes in a jungle. The Los Angeles sheriff paid him 500 bucks for the horse thief. Madeline dipped the blade again into the basin, cleared it of water with that immaculate flick of the wrist. He told her the lie at first. He was up from Los Angeles where he owned a harness shop, headed to San Francisco to judge the market, looking to expand. His brother would take over the shop in Los Angeles. His brother had consumption. The dry Los Angeles air was good for him, but August, this version of August, he spun out for people, this particular innocent thread loved the climate further north, too hot in Los Angeles, too dusty for him. And San Francisco had a better class of people. And now the truth, she'd said in the dark. And he told her the truth as he lay there in bed, the dentist practice, the train, the change of names, then further back, the packet ship out of Hamburg, how the first thing he'd seen coming into New York had been a seagull that had seemed to hover just a few feet off the rail of the ship the canary and crimson of its beak, its noiseless wing, the sun reflected in the glossy void of its eye. Everyone else had been at the other rail looking at Manhattan's glaucus roofline under a fog of chimney smoke. The seagull had been his first symbol of America. He was 17. Later, there would be other symbols, his Union slouch hat, a man draped dead over a split rail fence, the taste of chicory from a tin cup, dental tools and bloody teeth in a tray, the steam train like a hissing metal spider, the colt. He told it all to her, from his village childhood to his mother's death among dust motes floating in a lacy room, from the boat to America to the war, and how he just walked away from the war, leaving his birth name, Hugo Carlson, behind him, along with the rifle he leaned against a pine trunk and emerging from a forger's basement in Brooklyn as Hiram Anderson. And what of it? Everyone in America moved from one identity to another, putting new selves on like a new suit of clothes. First, you choose the cloth, the texture and the weight, the grain and the pattern. Then you tailor it to your body. Soon enough, you see yourself in a mirror and you know the reflection in the new suit is you. Later, depending on your fortunes, you might sell the suit to a secondhand store or to the ragman. You might pawn it to keep from going into hawk or trade it for something better. America herself was doing that, changing the constellation of symbols that made her up with each new president. Hell, with each new season's fashionable hat or dime novel. Before, his life had seemed like a series of almost unconnected events. But spinning his story for her, he began to see a pattern. He began to feel sorry for himself. This country, this country had made a gunman of an innocent boy. He looked back at that 17-year-old boy at the rail of the packet ship, watching the seagull hover in the bright air, and didn't know him. This country had torn something from him.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. Thanks, Ray. Ken, where are you at right now? Uh, thank you, Ray. That was uh, that was awesome. Um, I just there are just so many cosmic coincidences here, but you know, your story is like this perfect perfect encapsulation of um, what I was talking about it in terms of the way we narrate ourselves into being. You know, mm. I, I, I say mm. that um, it, it literally is true. You know, I have this theory that we're made of stories. We, we don't just live a life. Our life, like your character mentions, is just a series of one random thing happening after another. You get off a boat, you, you see this girl, you decide to change your life. <laughs> Everything is random, but it's only in the telling of it that it starts to make sense. And we're not just telling this to um, people we meet. We're we're constantly engaging this act of self-narration, of telling the story of our own lives to ourselves to make sense of it. We tell that story to explain how we ended up where we are. How do we make these decisions? How? Why am I the person I am? Why am I... Um, doing the thing I'm doing. How do I derive meaning from this life I'm living? You, you don't get that from, you know, the life you live, which is literally objectively one random thing after another. It, but that, we can't live like that. Uh, we have to actually narrate it into being. We have to actually make sense of it. We have to construct a character art for ourselves. We have to make, impose a plot on the things that happen. And I just love how, you know, Your story here encapsulates what I think is a universal story, but, you know, often it's identified as a particularly American story, the idea that you can be who you say you are. This is the story of Gatsby. This is the great American novel. This is I'm born with this name. I'm going to tell people another name. And when that no longer suits, I'll tell them another name and I will just keep on mm-hmm. going. This is, this is a story that, you know, that Candace Bushnell has told over and over again, that Scott Fitzgerald has told over again that every great American novelist has kept on going because this is just the soul of the American story that we can, in fact, tell a story about who we are. You know, immigrants come here and they tell a new story and they go on uh like you say america itself is trying to try out new stories new identities and in fact we're in the middle of one right now where we're struggling over what the hell is the american story that is what our politics is all about right now mm. um i just loved how you told the story in this lovely twisted time twists in on itself it goes back and goes forward and This is the way the mind works. We don't live in just the present moment. We're always time traveling back and future now. And then everything we read reminds of something else. You know, she sees that he sees this woman and he's reminded of that woman. He sees this face and he thinks of that face. He, he does this thing. He remembers that thing. He, um, it's, it's this, 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 we experience time linearly. I mean, we experience our lives linearly, but we don't live it that way. We live mm. by jumping all over the place and constantly circling back on ourselves, much like the woman in your story who travels back to this moment and inhabits it all. We do that literally with our own lives by traveling, <laughs> jumping back and forth all the time. Um, anyway, so loved it, right? That was very mm. cool. Mm. How about
2: you, Tochi? there is so much i responded to in that story and it's funny because at first i thought i was going to you know talk about you know how it made me think of you know subject and object and how what ken was talking about with regards to self-constructed narratives uh turns us from one to the other turns us from someone that things happen to to the happening itself um, but then you got to the end, and I was like, no, I think I'm actually going to talk about like the bloodthirstiness of America. <laughs> like that just and especially, like, especially in it's embodied so so viscerally. Like I think it's it's you know, sort of all all over and colors so much of, of American narrative and of just like American soul, but is is embodied so viscerally in the western um and in like every story that that is like you know set in in that genre or even that that is commentary on that genre this you come here and become like a blood you become blood like you become violent like this that's what the country does to you that's what this place does to you that's what it's done since like time immemorial And because I remember, I remember thinking like maybe this was like 2015 or so. But um, you know, one of the one of the biggest you know critiques of the Obama presidency was you know the vast increase in drone strikes that happened under his presidency, particularly uh, over Syria during the you know the height of that you know conflagration or conflagration. And I remember you know wondering to myself. You know, would this country have ever let a president not be that like not? Like it almost felt as though you know the American public were demanding this this response, this like this militariness of each of its presidents, so that you could even have a president who ostensibly presented himself as. You know, the sort of cerebral, you know, if not pacifist, then you know, considerate person who deliberated with regards to the taking of a life, but at the same time, this was a person under whom you know drone strikes and the you know the killing of people by drones um skyrocketed, right? And mm. so it's like, mm. could this country ever countenance, ever countenance a chief executive who did not do such a thing or who would not do such a thing? And like, I just, I just remember, I just remember thinking to myself, I don't think, I don't think this country can, like mm. we, I don't mm. think this country would mm. ever elect a president who wouldn't be that, who wouldn't do that. And we see that so crystallized in the Western it, like he was a boy, like this character was just a boy who mm. noticed mm. a seagull and he's turned. And I just, I love the phrase almost an accident almost an accident it wasn't completely an accident it wasn't a mistake no there was that like there was that nugget of deliberation behind like there was that nugget of intentionality behind it like there was that nugget of i meant to do that behind Mm, it mm, and mm. that to me like perfectly perfectly captured in the almost at the beginning of that phrase and i just that that just so resonated with me i was just like that like that's that's the story of america and the way in which you took his story and extrapolated it into the national narrative i thought was so poignant and so incredibly well done because it does like i do i do think that in many ways that that almost that sanguine avariciousness is in many ways the spine of the american story you know there i don't think there's a version of the story of america that that you can tell that doesn't involve massive bloodletting Mm, Um, mm, mm. and it just like I, i i just think you captured that so perfectly yeah there's
0: a, um, like a way in which t- there's a part of... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Ken.
1: yeah Sorry, Toshi I wanted to follow up on your comment just with two things. One is, um, it's uh, I think it's Alexis de Tocqueville who said that for an American, every day is a day of battle. So that just reminded me so much of what you said. I was also reminded of the opening um, segments of Red Dead Redemption, which is also another great American Western story. And Of course, you know, one of the very first things you do where you're bonding with this other character is you shoot. that that is that is what you do. The very first thing you learn how to do is to shoot, uh, to kill. Uh, and really is, in some sense, very deeply woven into the soul of the way we imagine the American experience, mm-hmm. the American story. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna touch
0: with the way that that the the person who is not yet August, but who is no longer Hugo, and is sort of letting go of harem is is saying like a part of him, whoever he is, has already learned that in a moment like this, you better have your gun close by. And so that's the almost piece. There's a realization. I'm not doing this by accident. There's some part of me that already knows that I have to be ready to draw, even as I'm surprised to discover that I have that capacity in myself. And, And it puts me in touch with, this idea of hostile reading, like there's a way in which it seems to me that this sort of American, what we're calling American and like almost demands of us, a part of us that is always hostily reading the stories around us. Like from the moment the colonists arrive, the the hostile reading of who are these people who are already here, which, which in turn, like many of the colonists were driven by, by, by fear of pain and torture and suffering for the hostile reading of, of that, that their religious identity or whatever that might be. So this kind of like uh, that moment when August realized like, Oh shit, I thought I was choosing me, but I've been chosen. I've been sort of shaped and that like that paradox, that trap, there's something so beautifully captured in that story. And Ray, we uh, quick check. Maybe Ray, before you respond, we're, we're approaching our time boundary. In about 12 minutes, if if we all went past a, f- a few minutes, maybe five to eight minutes, would you have that time or should I aim, aim to end us right at 1130? Let me just check in with everyone. Thumbs up if we go a little further. Thumbs down if you have to. OK, great. So maybe Ray, I'd just love to hear as you hear us play with that excerpt from your story. What's coming up for you?
3: Uh, well, I mean, it's... <sighs> it's always wonderful to have great readers, right? I mean, that's the, that's the thing when somebody gets it, they understand what you, what you did. They understand the elements that you were trying to put together. Um, And I think that's the sort of architects talking to architects, right? I mean, that's um, uh, I'm, I'm very, I feel this body high, right? When somebody really (laughs) understands my work, like you understand, I'm like, I'm tingling, right? It's just such a wonderful feeling to be understood. I. I think this is a country saturated in violence. Um, and, and, and we are all embedded in, in a system that is that is that's the history is saturated in, in violence. Um, our way of looking at the world is, is affected by that. And what I'm fascinated by, and what I tried to sort of get at in this story, is not an answer to a question, but, but a, an extensive elaboration of a question. What is the individual? when we are all embedded in a system that forms us Mm. Mm. and yet we know we know this we have choice to one degree or another there is choice and that's where it's captured in that word almost right
0: Mm. Mm.
3: almost by accident Mm. but not exactly because um we're not just trapped in language exactly we're also capable as metalinguists of analyzing the language we're trapped in right we have tools to look to pull back and look down but we're still when we pull back we're in a system right so there's this for me this is this trying to wind out a uh, a depiction of a man who arises within and represents and is is representative of a system of violence, and the the time traveler in the story, just to sort of put a point on it, is a malevolent entity, right? Who says that she continuously travels back to the American West because she loves how saturated in violence everything mm-hmm. about the West is. It's the last time she says in American history when Americans are truly able to be what they are in her opinion, right? (laughs) And that after that, all of the opportunity for this will close down slowly, right? But this place, this (laughs) is perfect for her, right? It, right? (laughs) And um, I, I, I think to counter that extraordinary negativity that I have sometimes about reading American history, I also think there's something else that's sort of hopeful about us, um, And that is that every truly patriotic American citizen is only patriotic because they are imagining an America of the future that is better than this one. And I mean truly patriotic as separated from the trash of patriotism, right? Mm. I mean, the, the ones who truly care about this country, what they're patriotic about is its potential to actually live up to the lies that were told in its foundation, right? And to turn those lies told by liars who had no intent of fulfilling them into some sort of better society. Um and and that's not in this story, but that's that's very much in where I where I write from and think from as, as an as an individual as this aggregate right is that there is a better place i think it's probably named america and it's somewhere in the future it's certainly not here and not yet (laughs) and it has not existed i don't believe that america that the america that we are that we feel a part of has arrived
0: Mm. Mm. Tochi or Ray, what's what's coming up? I'm sorry, or Ken, what's coming up for you as you just as we deepen into this question
1: of of the American identity or possibility? I mean, I I very much, you know, identify with both sides of what Ray said, you know, the 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 horrors of our obsession with violence and our simultaneous endless optimism. Uh, And sometimes I wonder if one leads to the other or if they are truly both sides of the same coin in that one enables the other and one makes the other possible i don't know uh i think these are questions we struggle with uh but I, I do think that we all insofar as you're an american uh it is your moral responsibility to struggle with these issues and to figure out what is the way out and if there is a way out um america is powerful and um that with great power comes great responsibility, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and we do need to reckon with our great potential and and power for violence, as well as its very counterpart, and, and figure mm. out mm. how we can move on from that.
2: Mm. 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 Yeah, it, like, the Western as like, American id is such a, like powerful concept that just like rings with with rightness like I like yeah like I get it like it really does feel like when people when people say something's like the wild wild west like no matter what they're talking about they're like oh man yeah Twitter back in like 2012 that was like the wild wild west like they're always talking <laughs> about violence <laughs> they're always talking about violence it's like yeah man like I you know There was this, you know, there was this mobile clinic, like, you know, on Nostrin in Brooklyn. It was like the wild, wild west. They're always talking about violence. Mm. And Mm. like it always, there's no way I like, I, I don't think I've ever heard somebody compare something to the wild, wild west in a way that didn't invoke some sense of violence. So I think like, I just, I really, I really vibe with that characterization of, you know, that period of expansion into the american west as like you know one of the one of those instances in american history where you know the story of america was governed almost entirely by id you know there was no ego there was no super ego um it was just impulse and want um and i i think what's interesting too about the optimism you know it 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 goes back to that James Baldwin quote that I'm absolutely going to mangle and and will end up paraphr- paraphrasing, which is that, you know, he, he talked about, um, I only critique this country as much as I do because I love it as much mm-hmm. as I do. And that, to me, embodies so much of, of where that optimism can come from, particularly amongst those populations in America that have seen the business end of the barrels, so to speak, um, that have been the victims of that individual as well as institutional violence. Like, how can you continue to love and care for a place that keeps doing this thing to you, right? And that's in part because you believe in this better version of it and you're working in, in whatever way you can, whether it's, you know, being a legislator or whether it's like raising kids that aren't governed by these baser impulses you know to actualize that better version of america and you know it's it's something i see embodied a lot in immigrant populations and in the like descendants of immigrant populations you know i'm first generation myself both my parents came from from nigeria and you know it's it's one of those things where you you know when you're a kid and as you get older you listen to the stories not just of what previous generations endured in the old country, but like what they endured, you know, in their early lives in America, like mom went to Liberty university in Lynchburg, Virginia in the eighties, like like for, for a Nigerian woman with an accent that might not have been the most hospitable environment, (laughs) but she loves this country. Like she loves, loves, loves this country. And so, it's interesting look you know cuz looking at it you might see paradox but at the same time it makes it makes sense if you if you sort of have this notion of the belief in the better america that you're constantly trying to reach um because it's very difficult to it's very difficult i think to you know if you're particularly if you're among the oppressed class to have love for this place it as it exists in the present with no concept of its potentiality to become a better place um but if you do have that idea of okay, it's not always going to be like this um then like i i don't know it's it's a it's a very in my mind, strong way of countering the pessimism that comes with this idea of bloodlust being a foundational part of not just American history, but like American present.
1: Mm. Mm.
0: (laughs) wow. I love this. I love that. uh, This is exactly how I wanted to spend this time with you all. So really feeling like deep gratitude for all of the doors that your stories opened and that your relationship to each other's stories opened in our conversation. And and as we approach the end here, I invited each of you to bring um, what I might call a benediction or a blessing for the space. Um, And it doesn't have to be saccharine or it doesn't have to be. It can hold all of the paradox and tension and possibility and tragedy that's present. but I feel that feel that feel like we've arrived at that moment where, where where that would feel really right to do. And I thought maybe Ray, and then Tochi and then Ken, you could each read something for a minute or two to just kind of take us into this moment as we come to close today. So Ray, I'll pass so I'm you. going
3: to close with a with a poem uh, that I wrote um, after a visit to the Oxus Temple, which is a, a temple. Um, at the meeting of two rivers in, in Central Asia, uh, quite famous. Um, and, uh, I saw there, uh, a square, four squares. So a cross within a square, um, that is clearly a game. And I recognized it because I've seen it carved into the temple bases and other, other surfaces all over the ancient world. And the Oxus Temple is interesting because it's a Greek temple, but it's extremely far from Greece. It's in modern-day Tajikistan. And the Oxus Temple was founded under uh, Alexander. So um, you can imagine that the people who were there were very, very far from home. This is the poem. It's called Confluence. What draws me is the scratching of my tribe, hacked deep into the temple column base, four squares together forming the gouged trace of a game. You rise up from this sign. Dumping chipped sword in the dirt, mannish mended blanket as a seat. You sweating work the board with a blunt bronze dagger, blowing dust of chipped stone from the grooves. Now it is done. In the temple columns' shade, while other make others make offerings and the high priest drones on, goring his hands in goat guts. You, a laughter, scatter bones, punch each other on the shoulder. Later, you'll go naked to the river. This far from home, you're never really clean. Tired, afraid, you lift your gaze across the ox, thinking arrows arcing down on the shields, rumors of the armored juggernauts the enemy will use to pulp your bones. You force your concentration back to the game. You rise, as real as me, from this sign. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Ray. Tochi, I'll pass to you next.
2: Uh, certainly. So I'm, uh, you know, I'll keep this relatively relatively brief. I'm I'm going to read uh, the third step prayer, um, which you know, for you know, some context for those who are not familiar. Um, Third step prayer is, is a part of 12 step programs with regards to, uh, people suffering from addiction, addiction Mm. to, Mm. uh, you know, narcotic substances, addiction to food, what have you. Um, and the third step, uh, is generally about, uh, sort of getting out of your own way and, and, you know, putting, you know, putting your will to the side and almost sort of exceeding, um, Yourself to, you know, the will of a of you know an omnibenevolent higher power, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be higher power as conceived in, in Christian theology, but it's sort of like the, you know, almost a dissolution of self. Um, and the third step prayer is as follows: God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm.
2: Thank you, Tochi.
1: Ken, close us out today. Uh, So I'm going to read you a little bit from... um an essay I wrote about history, story, and spell, uh, which are three words that actually were all intertwined at one point. Uh, spell mm. is the Anglo-Saxon word for what we now would call a tale. So a good spell is where the word gospel comes from. Uh, spell <sighs> actually means a story. Um, and uh, history and story both come to us from Norman French. And at one point, they were not distinguished at all. They were the same word. Um, so I wrote a little meditation on that, and this is one part from that essay. Out of mere stories, we construct our identity at the individual as well as the collective level. Each of us is like a hero from the ancient epics. We're born into ignorance like Adam or Gilgamesh, devoid of names and stories, minds, blank slates. And then gods and demons in the form of our parents and teachers come to guide us through the reed strewn shore and carry us across the tempest-tossed sea, gifting us our first memories. These first stories a personal mythos then come to define us. The way we were loved channels how we will love. The way we were hurt frames how we will view pain. Layer by layer, story by story, we build up the self from scars and calluses left by mentors, friends, lovers, monsters we meet in the course of our odyssey on our journey to the west and later as we strive through the dark wood midway along life's journey we realize as mortality finally sinks in that we've also become outsized figures to those who come after us to be incorporated into their stories as heroes and villains we narrate ourselves into being fill our soul with a breast horde of stories and ultimately find solace in our spell shroud as we decline into senescence.
0: Mm. Gentlemen, thank you for casting such good spells today. This has been really uh, beautiful, and um, I'm so glad that I got to get this particular constellation of of human beings together, and and I hope it happens again at some point. But thank you deeply, deeply for this time.
2: Oh, thank you for having us. This was such a spiritually rejuvenating time. Um, I, it really does feel like fellowship.
1: Yes. Yeah. Thank thank you. It really felt good to talk about uh, the stories and to hear from you. So thank you, everyone.
0: Mm. I'll just say very quickly, Tochi, what you just said, I think is giving me an analogous feeling to you that you described when we like, you get it. Yes, this show is, if nothing else, about fellowship, both for us here, but also anyone else who might join us and co-create that fellowship um, as they go on their journey. So deep bow to, to each of you. Um, I will we'll follow up with more uh, after this, but just thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua and audio editing and engineering services from Jim Serqua at Sump Pump Studios theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able... But 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, presence we need you now